Welcome to the Mere and Powerful Podcast, where we believe in going far by going together. Hello, Meerkats. Welcome to another episode of the Empowerful Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Brian Pathé. And I'm Rebecca Pathé. Hello. It's good to be with you. It's good to not not be with you. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we sit down with Nicole Bassett. She is an incredible woman. Um, I want to call her the sustainability queen. I hope that's okay with her. Um, she is co-founder of the Renewal Workshop. She was the social responsibility manager at Patagonia for a time, as well as director of sustainability at Prana. The first at Prana. The first at Prana. She has a long-standing career in sustainability, bringing that to supply chains, um, particularly within the apparel industry. And we had a great conversation with her. We align in so many ways. Um, Tell me what struck you about our conversation today, Bri. You know, just her, uh, I mean, she's brilliant, first of all, uh, very, very smart. Uh, but, but I think just, just her approach on to how to, how to fix um, some issues with the economy as far as waste and consumerism and, and how we can use the circular economy to better the world and business. Um, and just, uh, I mean, she, she's very, very, very passionate about this conversation. So. Um, I was struck by that and just, just her kind of uh, no-nonsense approach to sustainability. Yeah, she believes that business not only has the power, but the responsibility mm. to heal the planet. And um, I'm so grateful that Mir is on this journey of trying to do our part to help heal the planet yeah, in, and in talk- a way that makes sense for our brand. We talked about our reclaimed line that we launched at Winter Outdoor Retailer in January, which is coming out later this summer, which we're very excited for, where we're taking some of our returns and damaged product and making them into new products um, that, that will be available to all of you beautiful people. Uh, but this episode was kind of inspired um, by by our new color, Home, uh, which was then inspired by the Pale Blue Dot essay by Carl Sagan. Um, on really how we take care of our home planet. Um, this color is, is very representative of the pale blue dot. It's a beautiful blue. Uh, you can check it out on mirror.com. But uh, yeah, I had a great time hanging out with uh, you and Nicole. It was a fascinating conversation. We hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Without further ado, here's Nicole. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to meet you guys. Same. You're coming to us from Hood River, Oregon. And yes, beautiful day. Beautiful day. You mentioned you're working on one side of the house. Your husband is working on the other. These are the times that we're in. Yes, absolutely. I think it's hilarious. All these like memes of spouses in the same house trying to handle uh, <laughs> conference calls and learning different personality aspects of your partner and their job. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, like overhearing conference calls. You're like, oh man, I didn't know you were that kind of guy that said like, let's circle back or... <laughs> <laughs> or or what else? Like at the end of the day, blah blah blah. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, do you do you have uh, children running around? I don't. No. I uh, hats off to all the parents who are doing this with kids. Like that is incredible. For real, we we do have two kids, but we we do have some work life separation. We we are in an office. Um, Beck and I are in our own COVID crew. So I, yeah, hats off to the parents that have kids at home where they're working. Um, yeah, I don't know how people do it yeah it's it's wild times uh, but it's the new norm and we're all getting used to it um it's funny because there was a video that went viral many years ago where there was like a reporter in hong kong and his kid came in on like a little cart or whatever and it was like went all over the news and i feel like that just happens daily now like right. <laughs> like zoom fails are just abundant people don't even bat an eye it's like oh yeah, yeah. there's a someone in the background or a dog ripping through or whatever it is <laughs> totally so, uh, yeah, let's let's jump in. So you're the co-founder of the Renewal Workshop, and I absolutely love what you all do. But for those who are tuning in, could you just give us a brief uh, kind of background as to what is the Renewal Workshop and, and kind of how you got into this this amazing business? Yeah, the uh, the story of the Renewal Workshop definitely starts with my story, which is I worked in sustainability in the apparel industry for about 15 years. Um, and I was very, I had the coolest job. I got to work with brands to help make their supply chains more sustainable. So like converting materials to organic or recycled or getting bad chemistry out of products, get going and trying to implement fair trade in factories. Uh, and uh, really, really wonderful and meaningful work. But one of the things at the end of the day that was super clear was that um, 
the business model in which the apparel industry is based on is what's broken, right? So even if we make everything sustainable, the growth model of making more revenue is by making more stuff. Mm -hmm. And the earth does not have enough capacity to just continuously make more stuff for us to have a an economy. So it was very inspired by uh, the, the concept of a circular economy, not a new concept at all, but uh, it was starting to feel like now was the time where businesses couldn't be business as usual anymore. We had to start thinking differently. And did a bunch of work for a number of years around what would circular look like for apparel. Um, and then looped in my co-founder, Jeff Denby, who had started his own apparel company, Pact. And uh, the two of us uh, worked on it for a while. And, and so the Renewal Workshop is a service company to apparel brands and textile companies to basically help them become circular businesses. And we do that through strategy work and we do it through operations. So, um, okay, that was a lot of words, what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the pitch in the elevator and people are like, oh, okay. Uh, but what we do is we, we work with a brand, we take everything that's unsellable or considered waste. So products that have been returned because they're damaged, customers now take things home, wash them, try them on, decide they don't like them and return them. Uh, things get damaged at stores. Um, and then there's all the product that gets sold and what happens at the end of that product's life. Um, and right now the options are to donate it to charities who really don't want the volume that they're getting. They only absorb about 20% of it. So all that product comes to us via the brand. So we work in for the brands. And then it comes to our factory where we, we assess its value. We clean it, we repair it, and then we make it available for sale again. Uh, and the brands are the ones who sell the product. So we've got a couple of examples of partners in the market right now. Um, RenewalWorkshop.com is a marketplace for a number of different brands who are selling there. Uh, the North Face Renewed is their own website that where they just sell their renewed product. Uh, we have a partner like Toad & Co who's selling it in their stores and Koyuchi selling it in their stores. So uh, we really support wherever a brand wants to sell their product. But the whole idea is um, let's make sure that nothing ever goes to landfill. I absolutely love that. And and you're solving a problem for the businesses that you work with. You know, they're they're maybe standing in their warehouse and we'll talk about our experience with this in a minute. <laughs> looking at the the pile of returns in the corner saying this is a growing problem, like what are we going to do with this? And we can either we have a choice, like we can either be responsible about that pile or we can be irresponsible about that pile. And um so, and then of course, beyond solving a problem for that business, you're doing good for the environment at the same time. And you know all of this, but you know, it, when you start to think about it just as a consumer, it's like so revelatory. I listened to uh, a TED talk that you gave and you said that businesses need to start acting like nature. And that really struck me. I had never thought about it in that way that, you know, when the leaves fall from the tree, they go through a process um, that that you know is is circular and it it nourishes different points along its journey and why can't businesses do the same I mean even just by starting small and you outlined that in your TED talk as well which I would highly recommend anyone listen to if you know if you're kind of curious to to dive into what a circular economy could look like. But I was just really inspired. And um, and I'm curious to know how you came to, how this came to be like your passion and your, you know, your mission in, in life, really. Ooh, that's a, a good question. Um, I, I mean, I, I was very lucky. I grew up with pretty uh, hippie liberal parents who um, <laughs> decided to live off the land in Northern British Columbia. Uh, I remember someone saying, oh, I always wonder what would happen to the kids of those people. <laughs> <laughs> here, here you are. You're like, thank here you. Is that a compliment? I don't know. <laughs> I know. Um, so I, I was very fortunate to live and, and our community was rooted in uh, with the Wet'suwet'en people of Northern British Columbia. So it was very like and integrated with nature and First Nations. And like there was a lot of honor and respect for the earth. Um, and I think that always just sort of lived in me. And then when I was in the apparel industry, I think what 
I, and I didn't, I was interested in sustainability. Like I was interested in businesses being agents of change and can you use capitalism as a tool to go do that versus um, nonprofit work? Because I felt like uh, it could move faster because that's where the decisions were and that's who nonprofits were trying to change. Um, so I did a master's degree in sustainability, but I got a job at Patagonia and, uh, and all of a sudden now I'm in the apparel industry. I didn't necessarily, I don't like have a passion for clothing. I, I just, this is my industry now. Um, and I think it just evolves over time where you realize like, oh, I'm trying to solve this problem by getting more organic in the, in the, uh, product line, or I'm trying to stop child labor in a supply chain. And then you're like, you're solving these problems. And then, but you keep like looking over your shoulder at this like behemoth, which is like the growth, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the elephant in the room is like, we just keep making more stuff. And that, and like, and, and if we don't actually address that, then we're not going to get there. And, and that really started to motivate like, okay, we have to solve the real problem. And the mm -hmm. real problem is that the economy, the way we've constructed it today doesn't work. And then the other thing that's so mind blowing is the last three months have pro proved this for us as, an, as a world. Like COVID said, hey, like enough. Like we're not, we, you're not, you don't get to operate business as usual. And so I think what I am super excited about is like the acceleration of people think, realizing like I, I need to change my business model. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's opened up a many, a lot of different things. I think, you know, obviously working from home is, is somewhat difficult. And I think there was this, this, um, idea or notion, especially from business owners or leaders or corporations that like the employee couldn't be trust working from home because they would be doing other things. And we've always kind of operated from the mindset of like, Hey, just get the job done. Like you should know what right. you're doing at work, get it done, whether it's the here, there at home, wherever. So we were, we were fairly like flexible to begin with. We didn't have like a formal work from home policy per se, but it's interesting because even now people are like, Oh, I know my employees are like, they're just not as productive. And I have, I, you know, the, the skeptical people, and I always ask them like, well, well, did you hire adults or did you hire children? Like if you hired adults, <laughs> clearly they should be responsible. To adults get know how to, you know, throw a load of laundry in and get back to their email. Like yeah. it's not a problem. Yeah. And by the way, like walking around a massive office and like having conversations at the water cooler. Yeah. Those are, those are important to build culture and whatnot, but also like, it's not like you're completely efficient at the office. Right. So anyway, where I was getting with that is it's interesting that now we're stuck at home and people have gone, huh? I've saved all this money by not buying gas or paying for a parking spot or, you know, there's all these like kind of savings. So or to the speak. time, the, or the time, the commute or, time, alone, know, yeah. the commute time. And, and definitely there's things about collaboration. I think, you know, I think offices do have this massive power of collaboration of like real interaction, um, which there will be a solve for that. But I think it's, I think it's really changed a lot of people, people's perspective of how much business could get done over video conferencing, not traveling. I mean, we traveled, uh, we travel a fair amount and I, you know, I miss that cause I do think travel opens kind of the world, the possibilities and empathy can be built there of understanding different cultures and whatnot. But all that to say, I think what you're doing, um, kind of highlights the need for kind of a new thinking, whether it's apparel being upcycled, recycled in a, in a way that's positive, rethinking how we operate as a business, um, is, is super important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm curious at Patagonia, were you, did you help kind of spearhead the worn wear concept or were you there when that happened or no i was there um a lot earlier than that um i was at patagonia in 2004 or five um for about four years um and at that time actually that was the year that patagonia launched their first sustainability report ever um and it was really interesting uh, having a conversation with like like it was so early days when we were like how much recycled paper <laughs> <laughs> and and how much you know renewable energy was on the roof and and our, we sat around and realized like oh no the the impact is in the supply chain like it isn't our business it's what our business influences mm. and and that really sparked i think a shift in um the company in the industry and back then we launched this uh initiative called the footprint chronicles yeah we actually went into the supply chain and took videos and like met all the people in the uh and talked about the stories and talked about like blue sign chemical management and organic and uh fair trade and well we didn't have fair trade then but those kinds of ideas and it and it was sort of pushing that emphasis and now that's just like common practice which is yeah what, was anyone cool. else doing that at the time i mean i can't imagine I don't, I don't think so. No. Yeah. 
No, no, it was really, it was really exciting. And that was, um, a lot of that had to do with um, the CEO at the time and uh, a woman named Jill Dumain who ran the environmental program there. Uh, yeah, it was uh, just really just sort of being like, okay, we have to start talking about the real thing. Um, there was a program called Common Threads, which was just a collection. So Patagonia takes back their items and that had launched around that time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of funny, like once you collect your product and you actually look at it, you're like, this isn't that damaged or this could be worn again. Like, why are we recycling it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so worn wear came um, after I had left, but um, yeah. great concept. Yeah, the Footprint Chronicles, I was I was absolutely fascinated by that because the, the business that I grew um kind of grew up in, in in from a standpoint of uh we were we were like talking about lack of sustainability um i was i was um the first employee at little hotties hand warmers like air activated hand warmers and there was you didn't want your competitors to know where you were sourcing because you know we were selling to costco and rei and, and the mentality uh, you know and still a bit in certain industries is very protection area of like you don't want your supply chain to be exposed. You don't want people to know where you're sourcing from and very kind of, ex, you know, kind of exclusionary and secret. But there's also the the flip side of that of just completely being transparent and showing where you're sourcing from because ultimately it comes down to brand strength and your kind of really your brand ideology and not necessarily, I mean, it's important where you source from, but your, your secret sauce isn't your partners. That's a piece of it, uh, but not the only part of it. And I just remember being like, oh my gosh, Patagonia is showing their supply, like, you could actually go and like contact the factory and be like, I need to source a bag here. But that was the whole goal of like, if Patagonia is helping uplevel the quality of the suppliers, why not help others understand where they might be able to, to, um, you know, supply from. So I, hats off to you all for, for that, that kind of entry level and the transparency. And now you're seeing it with, you know, the Everlanes and even in the outdoor space, much more, um, kind of exposure or insights into the, the footprint of, of the supply chain, which is, I think really, really important from a sustainability standpoint and transparency piece for sure. Mm-hmm. What are the challenges um, for the renewal workshop? So returns come in and you never quite know or can anticipate like what that return is going to be, you know, what the fabric is, what the color is. Um, so how, like, how do you approach scalability with yeah. the, the materials that you take to, to remake the next piece that then goes back out? Yeah, that's a great question. So this actually is one of the things I find um, incredibly interesting about a circular business model is in a traditional, in a sort of mainline business, new sales model, you look into the future and you say, hey, um, our cat prints are really, <laughs> they're trending, right? That's <laughs> that's what we're going to build and we're going to go towards that. And so uh, you build product, you have a you have either you have your own customers or you have wholesale accounts you have like this idea of how much inventory you're going to create and then you go make it and you sell through to that in a circular business model or sort of the next extension of that business is like hey guess what you're going to get a percentage or all of it at some point back and now i'm sitting on a pile of stuff and now actually i have an inventory forward sales model which is very different and it uses different tools and techniques and ways of thinking around it um, to be able to make that successful. It's not rocket science. Like you can train, we've, we've been doing it for four years. We've trained a number of other brands to think differently about it, but you start to market your product um, more so from like product categories forward. And then if you've got like iconic products that you've been making forever, like, you know, the North Face makes the Denali jacket forever or that you can do some product marketing, but at the end of the day, you're selling hoodies or you're selling pants or you're selling t-shirts. And so for us, what we say is we bring order to chaos. So you're right. We have no idea what we're going to receive when we open a box. Uh, We open it and the first thing we do is we sort out everything that's far too damaged to get renewed. Uh, That will go, those products could either go into a remade project. Um, So uh, the North Face has done a really cool line where they've like taken big patches on their product and uh, like to, to fix a very noticeable, you know, tear or something like that, or it becomes feedstock for recycling. And then the things that we can renew, we renew them. And we have a little bit of sense of 
because we've pre-sorted what's in there, we can we can be seasonal. And and what's nice actually with renewed is like we can be far more close to market. So like if if with like this year, well I don't know about the rest of the country and <laughs> Northwest, <laughs> we've had a terrible spring. It is still, like we've only just got summer, right? So we if we're like hey we're selling colder weather items like let's not flip new product onto the site until we need to and now we can start doing like summer product because that's what people are starting to go into um we just pull down product categories and sell that way so there's there's a little bit of of sort of ways you can navigate around uh uh getting kind of unknowns into knowns and and plan marketing around that hmm I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure the problem solving is like through the roof. <laughs> Just every, it, at every turn, really. So the, it is um, true. Oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, it, I was going to say, it really is true. And what blows my mind is there's so many times where we'll go, we'll be way, way, way down a path and someone will be like, oh, yeah, we didn't have enough information ever before until this point to know that x doesn't work or y doesn't work or whatever and i am constantly blown away by our team's ability to like adjust on that and i think because we have these strong principles around like zero waste and what can get renewed and how to serve the brand that people are like okay these are the boundaries i have to work in and then they problem solve to it but yeah it's been yeah lots of figuring stuff out yeah yeah i'm, I'm curious on as stuff comes in I would imagine it varies per brand or per contract or relationship. Uh, but how do, how, or maybe a better question would be like, has it been a challenge to figure out how you can upcycle things that have logos on them? You know, I can imagine brands being very much like, Ooh, I don't want my like arcteric thing to show up on a North face thing. Right. Or, or, or what, like what's mm -hmm. the separation of church and state, so to speak, as stuff comes inbound. Yeah, so that's a clarification um, I should have made. So we renew things for a brand for them. So we're not mashing things together um, for any any brand. Everything is kept very separate. Um, so brands only sell either renewed items. So these are just like fix it back to like new or the function that it was it was designed for. Or if they want to do a remake, they only use their materials and remake something. Where there is an ability to actually leverage a lot of scale is items that are really damaged and would go into what we call recycle. Uh, we can th put everybody's cotton together because mm. cotton is the 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 main the same thing. And then once we have enough volume of cotton, that could go to a cotton recycler. Um, there's a whole host of issues around recycling in the apparel industry, which is that if you think about it in recycling, Recycling is only good if you have a single material that you can recycle, put into a new material because it's a known input and therefore a known output. Almost 70% of the clothes we're wearing either are blends <laughs> or, or we don't know what it is because we've cut out the tag. So uh, the ability to recycle a textile into a new recycle, into a new textile is very hard and very low. And there's some interesting innovations happening, but it can't be seen as the solution for our industry. We have to figure out how to use something as long as possible and then design for recyclability. Got it. That, yeah, we, we think about, or at least internally, when we think about sustainability, we think about durability and longevity as like kind of the first tenant. And then from there, we're, we're recyclable is a piece of it. And now we're looking at what is or how does bio or renewable materials kind of enter into that? Because you do like you had if you had a polypropylene that you cut with wheat husk. Well, now it's not recyclable because you've you've you have mixed materials. Right. And so there's kind of this whole concept of what is better, what, you know, is recycling better or is, you know, people ask us that they're like, what's better? And we're like, what's better is you use this thing for as long as possible. Like that's ultimately the best, you know, don't, don't keep buying new or, or don't throw it away and get a new one or, or whatever the thing is. And recycle recycling should be like the last solution right. um, in, in, in a sense. And I'm, um, I'm and I don't know if there's enough data yet or I'd be curious to know your thoughts on kind of some of the renewable uh, or biomaterials, you know, with like bamboo and some of these things entering into these supply chains. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Like is, is biodegradation better than recyclable recyclability? Like, I, I don't know. It seems like you enter this web of, or this matrix of complexity as new technologies come out. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely not. It's just it's not an apples to apples comparison. And there are trade offs along the way. And it, it kind of comes down to like, why are you designing this product? And you, there are certain properties, right? Like, and I'm curious to hear how you guys approach your product development. Um, but you need to use a certain material for certain reasons. But then, um, then you but I what you have to in circular really not dismiss is the fact that it has to go somewhere someday and so you do have to plan for that someday and yes the road to getting it used as long as possible is critical and we don't get to excuse that we used it a thousand times because one day this mixed material has is is garbage right because there was no system in place to take it back Podcast listeners, the world is full of color and we're telling stories about it. Stories of people and places we've encountered on our journey of empowering people for a better future as a brand. Today, head to mirror.com, order $60 worth of product and get $10 off. Use the discount code podcolor at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-O-L-O-R, all one word. You do not want to miss out on these colors. There are six. There's at least one shade for you, one hue for you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, so on that on that note, with when at the someday, the end of life, internally we call it EOL. I don't know. Is that a phrase? EOL? Yeah. Is that a thing? Okay, we we just like throwing it around and just like do other people say this um so we, we talk <laughs> we, we talk love about, acronyms. You're head of the yeah, game. yeah we love acronyms so many acronyms <laughs> at mirror uh but i'm curious like end of life and maybe again it's it maybe it depends on the material but i'm always curious like is it better to have something be recycled and renewed into something else or is it better that it decomposes if it doesn't have toxic materials meaning if it was like a bio base like if it was like a wheat husk PLA or something, is it better for that thing to degrade and compost or is it better that it's made out of plastic and then it's, uh, you know, entered back into a, a plastic supply chain? Well, so that, that kind of comes, um, to one of the great books that anyone who's interested in the circular economy has to read, which is cradle to cradle. Um, and they had did such a good job of articulating this difference between natural, um, nutrients and, or bionutrients and technical nutrients. So if we're talking about a bio-based nutrient, so like a, a cotton, for example, mm. is it better to take the shirt at the end of its life and put it in a compost or to shred it and turn it back into new fiber? Uh, that kind of doesn't really matter. Like I think if there's a bit, that's where you probably would lean on like a business case more, more than you would on an environmental impact. Right now, the way cotton gets recycled is pretty mechanical. It's shredded and then it's cleaned and then it's respun. Um, so it's not like there's a lot of chemistry being added to it. It's not like there's a big thing. But I don't, I don't have the a, like a comparable life cycle analysis to composting right. that. But then you get a material like um, polyester where it can never go. We should never put that in the earth. It, it right. cannot. We've we've adjusted the chemistry of this material such that it can never be absorbed. So it is our responsibility to build systems that take that product and keep it in circulation for its entire life. Hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. It definitely comes down to the material science of of certain things, and even like you know, then it, then it comes down to like, is wool better than cotton, or is wool better than poly? You know, and then cotton used to be cotton kills, and now cotton's like, oh, actually, it's really good to work at in because it helps you keep you cool, you know, because it doesn't dry out. And <laughs> I feel like every year it's like, ah. I don't know if you know this, Brian, but stainless steel does not decompose. It over time. It, it as far as I know. <laughs> It would take a really, really, really long time for that so to happen. So my question is, do you think it's possible for stainless steel to always be in a continuous circulation? It depends on what the thing is. So that's like my question how about to drink you guys. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's my question to well, you so, guys. <laughs> so, we, so, we've been, yeah, so we've been talking about this internally, um, and we did launch something externally at, at uh, Winter Outdoor Retailer, Reclaimed. And so the idea is, yeah, if something breaks, like like if a seam or like a, a, a sonic weld or a micro weld broke and the vessel doesn't hold water, what do you do with it, right? Like, could you repair it? Uh, so for, for the listeners, this is our version of looking in our warehouse in the corner and saying, wow, look at all this returned product. 
that was either gently used or there was some sort of manufacturer's defect um, and it's piling up. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. I mean, so we have, a, we've approached it from our business of, of, from like a, from a top down meaning like, what are we, what are we going to sell that we believe in that is durable and sustainable? Meaning we absolutely believe that you should not be drinking bottled water. I think the ratio is like one to 150 or so as far as bottled water and uh, on a life cycle analysis of carbon emissions to ship water, plastic being recycled in the water, bottled water versus using a stainless steel bottle and the carbon emissions to mine the steel, produce the thing and ship it from our factories to here. It's about a one to 150, I think. Um, there, there's multiple sources out there on, on that. Um, so we think we believe that reusability is really important. We think the material of reusability is really important, meaning we believe there's some plastics out there that are clear, that are, it's, it's somewhat suspect, right? The whole BPA thing uh, that happened in about 2010, uh, you know, so plastics, there, there's some danger with certain plastics. Uh, and then aluminum is not a great material to drink from because it has to have a coating on it, right? So aluminum pans are coated. Um, SIG back in the day was coated. They had a BPA liner. They lied about it. So we, we just naturally selected stainless steel because it's, it's a stable material. It can be cleaned. Um, it does have a long life cycle. Then you get into the, 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 the small, it, it is a small percentage, which is great because it is so durable of, you know, manufacturing defect, scratch, dent, misprint, mislogoed, dropped off the back of a truck. You know, you, you get this small percentage, you know, less, far, far less than 10%, kind of in the 1% range of just things that happen during transit, um, you know, falls off a pallet, gets hit by a forklift, you know, just, just <laughs> things that happen, you know, and, and really consumers being demanding, um, uh, which is good and bad, right? Like you, you want customers to be demanding to you build a quality product, but it is slightly frustrating when somebody drops their bottle on a hill and it rolls all the way down to the hill and they're like, well, my bottle scratched. I want a new one. And you're like, well, yeah, like we'll send you a new one because we believe in that. But then what do we do with all this stuff that's returned? Right. And so we had, I, I'm on the spectrum of OCD. Uh, it, it, it comes and goes, um, uh, Beck is much more clean and orderly than I am. However, I'm also kind of a hoarder, right? It's hard for me to throw things away because I don't want to waste things, right? So anyway, long story short, I'm talking way too long about this. But in our warehouse, we've kept all our returns and misprints. So when we co-brand with somebody and like the art was approved, but they didn't realize that it had the wrong date on it or, or, or whatever, right? Or, you know, there's a mistake. Mistakes happen. We've kept these going, we'll do something with it someday. An art installation or just something cool. Um, and so we launched Reclaimed. And the idea was, well, what else could we make out of the stainless steel drinkware that can't be used to actually drink something out of, right? Like, could we, could we hold something with it? And so we came up with the idea that most of the returns were kind of in the 12 ounce, um, kind of vessel size, so to speak. And it, you know, we were kind of racking our brains and we came up with the idea of putting candles in there, um, that we could kind of produce instead of having candles put into a glass, let's just put them into our stainless steel products that are returned. You don't have to drink from it. You can burn these beautiful candles. We found a soy-based um, local Seattle candle manufacturer, Good and Well Candle Company. So we started making candles um, and they're launching officially on our website later this summer. So they, they, the smell, they smell amazing. Mm -hmm. We're really excited about them. But then it was things like, could we make vases? Could we make pizza rollers? So we're, we're just starting to scratch the surface on what we can do from a reclaim perspective. Um, you know, most of our employees before, you know, everybody's working from home used kind of reclaimed products for pencil holders. And, you know, so there, there's definitely things that can be done. Paperweights, you know, we've thought about like smashing bottles and they become a paperweight. So to your point of like, what happens when you can't drink from them? There's plenty of solutions out there that, you know, we could come up with really interesting ideas on stainless steel. Um, so that's kind of how we're approaching it, but we're learning a lot along the way of how do we think about it and and bringing it forward to the, the um, product design standpoint of, how do we choose the materials that go into it? How do we choose less plastic or cutting plastic or biomaterials or whatever the thing is, right? So ultimate goal is that we're trying to reduce the amount of plastic, look at more natural materials, um, and then end of life, right? EOL, how do we make candles, right? So I don't know, we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to, we're, we're, we're continuing to explore. Um, but that's kind of like how we're approaching it. Um, I'd be curious what your, what your thoughts are on like, are we approaching it in the right way? Like what else should we be thinking about? Well, first of all, I want to commend you for even thinking about it because <laughs> there are not a lot of companies that are. Um, and I think it's it's a journey of um, being willing to take on the complexity and the like the fact that you there's a little bit of a like a, a soul crushing experience where you realize you've created something that there's there's nowhere for it to go. Right. Yeah. You have this well. And I think you're that's why I was super excited to talk to you guys is your brand is so important and it's solving a problem around plastic. Right. Like we have a plastic crisis in this world. 
it makes me nauseous to think if I was a fish swimming around the ocean that this is like what I've been handed as the world I have to live in. Um, and then, and then you, you unearth this other thing of like, oh, I made something that I don't know what to do with it at the end of its life. So I, I think brands don't want to go there. And the fact that you are is fantastic. It's um, uncomfortable because you have to admit that you're, you're, <laughs> you're like, we have this solution, but it's also a problem, but it's a solution, but it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the way we think about it is, um, is like, ha is a hierarchy, right? Like it's a hierarchy of use. And then you start to look at where are the, where are the big places where where you make a change and it can unlock uh, a really substantial answer. So the first thing is of all of the stuff that you have, like how much of it is usable again? Like, it, but the issue is it has a scratch or it has a whatever, right? And then does that become an opportunity for like a renewed water bottle line that you sell in various ways? And that that's a whole strategy that you can have because then it's getting used in its original sense. Um, then it's like, okay, how do I keep using it? And I love this idea of the candles. I can't wait to get one. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I was even thinking like, I love plants, so I can put a little plant yeah. in one. Yeah, yeah. AirPod air <laughs> holders. Yeah, at After Retail, we had AirPod plant holder, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, and just giving people sort of inspiration to like use the product in, in the way that it's just continuously getting used. Um, and then at the same time, in your design cycle, how do you start to say, and build the supply chain for, and that's the tricky part, right? So if you have a whole bunch of stainless steel, you know, stainless steel is an, an incredible product that can get recycled, but you probably, it's like, who do I know? <laughs> like that's a whole supply chain that you have to build out and that does require work. But once you get that set up and you're, you know, you could be saving it and I get it. There's just some stuff like it, the, it, it's faulty and you it can't get used at all. And so then it's like, how do you create a nice seamless way that that product goes into some kind of recycler and it's getting remade? And then the ultimate goal is then that's where you source your new uh, your new products from. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we want to get more to that. We feel like we're like not quite circular. Well, I guess the, the reclaim piece, some of these pieces, once we eventually sell on our website, the candles and some of these, you know, pieces that all little, like complete the circle on a, on a, on a, um, our reclaim product. The, the part that I think we could get better at would be the cleaning of things because it is drinkware. And I think naturally, especially in COVID times, people are like, probably not going to want to buy a used tumbler or a used bottle, so to speak. And so the idea is that, um, that we were tossing around was, post COVID, you know, could we have a process of evaluating and adding that piece into it that there is, there, there are cleaning tabs, there's way to safely, there's ways to safely clean the exterior and interior of a vessel. And then from there, you know, a UV oven or a UV treatment so that people feel super safe that there's nothing yeah. on here. Um, and then entering that back into the D to C piece or something like that. So, um, yeah. what's good is that piece is such a small amount of our business on the reclaim side. Usually it's more damaged and, and dented. And so it's not functional of the drinkware and that's where the, you know, the candle or, or whatever the, the item is. Um, but I love that idea of like hierarchy and, and just starting. I think that was the other thing too, is a lot of people want to have everything like perfectly mapped out and you know, it's, it's interesting with, you know, I think, I think there's a couple interesting themes about sustainability and racism in these days is that they're uncomfortable and we're so used to being comfortable. Like as consumers, we don't want to have the uncomfortable conversation that it is wasteful and there is a, there is a, a cost to it and racism, racism is real and it's uncomfortable to talk about it. And so we need to lean into the uncomfortableness of these conversations and just start and know that you like, we might get it wrong. It might be more. We might emit more carbon fixing the thing than just recycling the thing or, or vice versa, right? It might be more carbon emissions recycling it than just renewing it. So I think the important thing is to start and to learn and to be open to, to changing practices. Yeah, I think, I mean, if we're not leaning in, then the danger is that we fall into an apathetic state and then we're not solving anything or, or opening ourselves up to a new way. So... Yeah, that's a good point. I, I do think though, you know, while we are innovating with Reclaimed in our own right, in our industry, I do think we have people like you, Nicole, to thank um, for helping the Patagonias, the Pranas sort of bring this idea of sustainability to the masses because we know at the end 
that we have a market that's going to be um, uh, re- like receptive to the product. And um, that wasn't always there. And you've seen that in over the course of your career. So what, we what, have I'm, you to thank. I'm curious, sure. what, mar- what markers are you seeing um, that show that we're moving in a positive direction? Because I think sometimes it's easy to get into a pessimistic mindset of like, nobody cares. Like, <laughs> there's so much plastic in the ocean and so much waste. And I even open my own t-shirt drawer. And I'm like, why do I have 500 t-shirts? You know, like I have so many t-shirts that I could wear one a day and still not go through it. You know, like, like these are real things that are happening. But I'm curious, what, what sort of markers do you see? Or can you point to that you're like, no, 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 we are making progress. Yeah, I, 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 it is absolutely incredible um, how much progress we've been making and how exponential that progress has been. Like when I started in sustainability in 2004, there was like the Body Shop and Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's and Aveda. Like they were the four, that was it. And um, thinking like, well, how do I get a job in this? And I remember like five or six years later, the, the Cheesecake Factory had a sus- director of sustainability <laughs> job. <laughs> It's like, okay, wow. But you Do they just like cut the menu in half? They're like, all right, we're gonna be more sustainable. Yeah. Instead of offering everything, we're gonna offer half of everything. Instead on the of menu. a novel of a menu. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Yeah, but like McDonald's has a director of sustainability. They have they're looking at like um improvements to getting uh more of their supply chain, you know, food losing food waste and those sorts of things. But um, what I think also is interesting in the outdoor industry, which you um, you guys see, is that there every single brand has something. Like every single brand has like a line or a goal or a strategy or a team. And some it's like there's whole departments, some it's disseminated, but it's on everyone's radar for a reason. And that's because we're seeing the the impact of all of this. So. I think that's one piece. The other thing is when we started the renewal workshop and we were pitching the business, we're like, hey, so there's this thing called a circular economy (laughs) and it's really interesting. Uh, Here's a book or here's like this. And then now, five years later, we're talking to like the chief circular officer or Mm. like a director of circularity. And it is blowing up in Europe. Like... Um, the the EU has a mandate around circularity. Each country has mandates around circularity. France is like going gangbusters, banning like you can't you can't burn textiles anymore. So all these companies who used to burn their excess of textiles. Can. What's Louis Vuitton going to do at the end of the year? What are they going to do? Oh. Unfortunately, they're going to ship it to a developing country and burn it there. Right. Sorry, uh. pessimism. That's the stuff. That's a great start. Like That's about. a great start. Yeah. Um, and then, like, I, I think there's a huge opportunity in the United States um, with the, you know, I think it's still getting fleshed out, but this Green New Deal of, like, how do you get circular business models? I know in the state of Oregon, we've had a ton of support from our governor, Kate Brown, around, like, our business model and how do you support more businesses that are really looking at remanufacturing and green. So I definitely see it move out of the fringe into the mainstream mm. in a way that uh, is is getting a flywheel around it. Yeah, and then moving some like just weird laws and regulations that have that were there for some reason that made sense at the time and getting those out of the way because I know yeah. that Fremont Brewing is right next to us, their excess uh, mash or, or whatever the byproduct is of brewing beer, for a while there was like an EPA or whatever the state of Washington, um, I'm totally blanking ecology, some, there was some sort of regulation that prevented them from giving their feed to farmers Mm. because I can't remember what the complexity Mm. was, but eventually they ended up finding the way to like remove the law that prevented the thing. And it was just like, yeah, I mean, that's just like common sense. I mean, whoever fought for that was like people. Yeah. Like, let's think (laughs) about this for 30 seconds, you know? Um, So I, I think I'm encouraged that people are like, as it moves into mainstream, we can start to push away some of those those barriers that have pre- prevented um you know kind of that that circular mindset or you know and even i think maybe if covid would have happened 10 years ago reusability would have been like dead in the water right and so we've we've been having conversations with our coffee customers who are saying yeah we're coming up with solutions to make sure that our customers can use their reusable products because you know single use is like the single big lobby, big, big single use, whoever they are, is like so pumped on COVID because there's so much single use happening because of the fear of, you know, uh, the virus and whatnot. But I, I, I do think people are actually applying 
their resources to figure out how do we solve for reusability, even in times of a scare of a virus being on a, on a product, right? And so I think that's a market that I'm seeing that people are like, no, 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 we still have to figure out sustainability and reusability in spite of, you know, the virus, right? And don't you think that the more, the greater number of brands who commit to sustainability in some way, don't you think that just puts a little bit more pressure on every other brand that hasn't approached that yet? It's like this force that you can't see, but you can, you can kind of feel it on either end of, you know, absolutely where you are, where you sit. Well, it's like, yeah, your time at Patagonia definitely kind of pushed that, that, element of people having to kind of rethink and that's why I, I i applaud your model nicole because you you were kind of like okay do i do nonprofit? do i do for profit do i go into the business world and people often ask us why are you a for-profit business if you're you know giving money to nonprofits and you're choosing to be sustainable and whatnot and we absolutely believe that the marketplace is a is a tremendous force for good so let's not shy away from the opportunity to change the marketplace let's leverage that to make it better um and i think i think there's a there, like you said there's like that that kind of virtuous cycle that can happen within the circular economy yeah um i'm curious nicole what are besides the markers what are some what are some things that you are really proud of of your time at renewal workshop or, or even before that you know at patagonia and prana that you're like you know i i feel really great about the thing that i did like what are some what are some moments in your career that you you're really proud of uh, yeah, well, it's funny. One of the ones I'm most proud of was this project that I did with a team at Prana where we, um, we got rid of 80% of the product in poly bags, um, and changed the business so that they don't use poly bags Ooh, for majority tell us more. of the product. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was awesome is I was the first director of sustainability at Prana. So when I showed up on day one, like there was a line at my door going, I got a problem. And I, <laughs> I love that so much. Like, take a I number. Was like, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, this is really good. Because it's very different. Like at Patagonia, it's the ethos of the founders, right? And so it's, um, there isn't this, it wasn't the same like hustle the way like a company who's like trying to change um, had. So anyway, the the head of uh, retail was like, uh, poly bags are crap and it costs us this much money to dispose of them. It costs us this much time to deal with the product, all of that. Um, and I, I remember buying things and going, why is this all in plastic? Anyway, so we put everything. together work, everything. <laughs> and so we put together a working group and asked the question, what if we didn't have poly bags? And just systematically went through the business and each stakeholder was like, well, this would be my concerns. Okay, how do we solve that? Like, like the warehouse, like, how do you solve a warehouse? And they're like, I just need to be able to read the barcode. Okay, so we need to tie it somehow. And then the sales team, we did analysis and found out about 80% of our customers, including REI and Mountain Equipment Co-op up in Canada, and then our stores, and then our small retailers, they're like, I don't want it. Uh, that would make my life so much better. Um, sadly, Amazon and Zappos and Backcountry required it. So we were like, well, we have to have like a solution, but they're, they, they were not, um, it wasn't w worth it to change the whole business just for them. And then uh, we ran some analysis and actually was saving time and money to put product on the floor without it. So anyway, long story short, um, yeah, it was one of these projects where in the last year I've seen articles show up about, you know, Prana hasn't been using polybags for like 10 that, years. And it's like, that's amazing. So is it, is it bulk tied and like, like with yarn or like, what's the, what's, what does it look like? Yeah, it's, a, it's like a rolled and then there's a raffia tie around a, um, a hang tag. And then when we started the renewal workshop, I was like, well, guess what, everybody? We don't get poly bags. <laughs> we got to create something else. And um, our marketing and then operations team came up with a, an even better idea where we take um, a piece of pa recycled paper and we wrap it around the product. And um, all around that paper is the story of renewal. And, uh, and so it looks beautiful. It's this like little gift you get every time. And then no matter who you are in the country, it either is going to get recycled or it, if it's going to biodegrade into the garbage. Yeah. That yeah. is awesome. As far as I know, Patagonia products still arrive in plastic. Is that right? They do. I'm sure somebody's on that. Don't it's you a think? question I have for them. Yeah, they did it. 
they actually um they did a really they, there's they have a blog post about it they did a really in-depth study um but their op, their warehouse is set up to move things around on conveyor belts which requires it to be in plastic and that's the thing right so if a bear brand designs their business around bad things it's really hard to get the bad thing out whereas Prana was small at the time when I was there, or smaller. Mm. Um, and our warehouse was physical pick, pack, and ship. We weren't putting things on conveyor belts. So we could change out a box, and, and it was totally doable at that scale. And now they're growing, and they had to grow with that in mind. And yeah, there's challenges around it, but they knew how to design around that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I, this is probably a... I don't even know how you answer this question. So I, I'm curious, Nicole. Um, I feel like it's not a, the movement of sustainability and durability and, and improving our home planet. It's not a hard argument for people that already believe that's the right thing to do. And I always struggle with how do you get people to come along? How do you inspire? How do you invite? Because we've always approached mirror of like, don't, we've never said like, don't drink bottled water. It's horrible for the environment. We're trying to inspire people through design and aesthetic and beauty to join this movement because if you tell somebody not to do something that feels very like governmental and like regulated and people instantly put up their, their defenses. Um, but I'm wondering and, how, and rightfully so. And, yeah. It's like, you know, when someone tells yeah. you something to do something, you're kind of like, Whoa, Hey, what's, what's going on? But I'm like, how do you, how do you think about getting more people to come along to the idea of, you know, of, 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 you know, pointing back to Carl Sagan's, you know, the pale blue dot essay of like our responsibility to take care of our home planet, you know, when people, don't see that responsibility like how do you how do you approach that with people who are just not into it don't care don't believe there's a problem um it just seems like a monumental task <laughs> yeah um i have a couple answers so i think the first one is for a long time i just was like i'm just going to try and um live a way that is like if people identify with it, then they can see like the way I live as an example. So like, uh, how do you have a compost? And we had chickens at one point and then like I drive an electric car, like did those little things. Um, so it's sort of like living the, walking the talk is one mm. piece of it. And people then come and engage with you if they're ready. Um, but recently I've sort of learned some new skills. Um, I've, 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 getting quite involved in, um, you know, organizing for this upcoming election that America is having in a few months, register to vote, everybody. Do it, register. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the, t and, and organizing has amazing tactics around engagement that I think actually, if I were to tell somebody, tell myself 10 years ago, go learn about organizing instead of marketing. Because um, one of the biggest thing is you start with the story of self and you start with what are your values. Mm. And then you look at the story of us and then you look at the story of now. And so if, if you say to someone, like I'll use you guys as an example, uh, where you say to someone, hey, I lived in uh, New York and for a number of years and I would look every day on the street and see all these plastic bottles in the recycling every day because there's like you have garbage on the streets every day in New York and that really got to me about like where does this plastic go and so I've switched to using um, reusable cu cups and this is how I've done it and it just like it, it's really important. Uh, and then sit, getting to the person like what's important for you like how does that link to you and if they're if they have um something and that's like yeah like garbage is a really big issue in my community or something like that and then and then hey you know if we do this and we advocate for like bans on single-use plastics like that can help our environment so you're you're sort of building like you start with the personal and be vulnerable with like why you make certain decisions and why things are important to you and then engage the other person in where you have shared connection and then how can the two of you go forth and bring that to change in the world mm. and and I, I was like, this is amazing, <laughs> amazing framework of how we want to do it. Uh, and so I've helped me shift a little bit around uh, connecting what, why things are important to me to why things are important to you. Even just our, how we've met, right? So 
when um, Henry reached out to me and said, hey, you know, Mir's on his path around circularity. I was like, oh, my God, there's not a lot of people. I need to know them. <laughs> I need friends. Like, and now, like, I listen to you and I think of ways, how can I be an advocate for your work? And, and you're listening to ways to be an advocate for mine. And we don't have to commit to anything. We can just have each other in the back of our minds and work towards certain things um, together. And that's because we have a shared set of values. Mm, that's so important. That's and that's so important through many things beyond just sustainability, but that shared shared set of values helps out so much. And even even within companies, you know, I think part of the reason that people maybe uh, there was some stat that I read the other day that was it was gosh it was like seventy was it seventy percent of workers are like not happy at work. It was it was something where it was just like <laughs> mind boggling where you're like wait what? And I think it's because there's either the companies don't have stated values that they live into that they actually practice. Or yeah. the employees don't know about what values they practice, and there's this misalignment where people aren't completely aligned to what what the what the piece is. And I feel like that's such an important uh, message or point. Make sure those values are aligned. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And and the and the way you get to value alignment is understanding your own values, which takes which means that you have to take time to then think about what you value. And I was we were kind of talking about this the other day about uh we're, we're going through this like leadership development course um that we're kind of testing out for our team and there's a whole piece where you go through your personal philosophy and mm -hmm. i thought how interesting in this day and age in america you know there's so much tension around racism and black lives matter and sustainability and and um you know environmentalism and there's this conflict and this friction and i was thinking about how few people if you just stopped anybody on the street around the u.s and you said hey what's what's your personal philosophy I don't feel like a lot of people would be able to clearly articulate like I believe in X, Y, or Z, or like this is what I'm marching towards. And it struck me of like, why why is there this lack of mental space or time to create what your family values or what your individual values are, or like what is your personal mission statement, your personal philosophy, which then reinforce why we wanna incorporate this into our own business for our own team members to be able to take time to understand what their personal philosophy is so they have a set of values that they can operate from. Um, so I think that's an amazing answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, we have some great questions. I'm so excited for you, for your answers to these. Like, oh yeah. These I'm are just excited. a couple questions that we like to ask all our guests at the end and it's, it, don't overthink them, expand as much or as little as you want on them. But, um, we just kind of have fun. Sometimes conversation spins out of it. So, um, thanks for entertaining us with your answers. Um, so the first one is, is it easier to go alone or together? Um, it is easier to go alone. It is, but that's not the right answer. Um, <laughs> no, there's no wrong answer. I don't think, I don't think. Um, but what you get out of going together, even though it is much harder, is so much more fulfilling. Mm. Truth. That's yeah. my experience too. In almost every, you know, high or low moment that I that I consider as part of my life, it's like I've always had people around me in those moments. Yeah. Um, what's one belief you hold that will never change? Uh, the people are born fundamentally good. Mm. Mm, I love that. And that's that actually gives me a lot of optimism and hope in, in times of conflict, especially with, with uh, in this day and age of racism, that it is learned, so therefore it can be unlearned. You know, like like when you look at kids and they just like don't, they're like, we have a four-year-old daughter and she's like, I don't, like she doesn't get it, right? Um, yeah. So it's, you know, people are born good. Do you read Brene Brown? Are you a Brene Brown fan? I am. I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't remember which book, but I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about a chapter where I think her and her husband have a big conversation around whether or not people are are born good or or, or are doing the best they can with what they have, something like that. Right. Um, okay. Next question. This is a fill in the blank. Don't sacrifice blank for blank. Oh, uh, okay. Wait, I have to figure out how to... The order. <laughs> the order, yeah. Don't. 
I think I'm going to say it backwards. It's all right. I was going to say, yeah. don't sacrifice the second drink for sleep. <laughs> oh. But I think it might be the other way around. Don't sacrifice sleep for the second drink. I that's think a that's good. Way it goes. That's a good one. We <laughs> that's know a really you, good one. We mean what's what your, you know. What's your drink of choice? <laughs> well, my COVID drink of choice is um, uh, gin and tonic. So, um, every, I I love hearing people's COVID stories because it is like an absolute window into who they are. So I don't know what this <laughs> says about us, but um, <laughs> our first COVID home project was building a bar. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Then we painted a bedroom. Now we're going to put redo a roof. Like it's not, it's getting less sexy over time. But uh, yeah, so we have been drinking a lot of gin and tonics. We, uh, for a while, well, I shouldn't say we, Brian, for a while, you were really interested in homemade tonic. Yes. And we learned, we, we, I think it's kicked off at a nice restaurant where we ordered gin and tonic and tonic they warned us they're like the tonic is not clear like it's gonna have you know your drink is gonna have like an amber hue to it or whatever and we were like why and they were like tonic in its natural state is an amber color and that tonic gets bleached or clarified into the clearness um, to be their shelf stable or whatever it was but this this restaurant on bainbridge island across from seattle um, I think it's Four Swallows, right? Or was? Yeah, they're not um, there anymore. They were so good, but... so bad, they went, so sad they went out of business. But they had a gin and tonic, and it was mind blowing. It was so delicious because as it you looked can like a it looked like a whiskey ginger or so, you know something with like this amber color. Anyway, I've always been fed, like someday if I get another business, it's going to be natural tonic that's amber in color. <laughs> Wait, can is this something like I could do it at home? I like think this so. could be my sourdough yeah. bread? Yes, I think I think it is the new sourdough bread that nobody let's start this trend. We should Nicole. look into we it. Should, just, yeah. Let's get this trending. <laughs> yep, 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 um, yep, yep. The sourdough bread thing is so Okay, funny. do you add lime or lemon to yours or do you lime? lime yes, yeah. lots of lime. Yeah, me yeah, too. Me yeah. Too. Um okay, what is one piece of knowledge you want to impart on the next generation? Oh, well, I guess my thing is you have one, you've being a human being and living is a very, very like the, um, what's the, the statistic of being able to be a human is like incredibly low or no. Yeah. Like the, like if you think about it. The odds are very low to be a human. And so you have been given such a gift. Like, don't don't waste this gift. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a I'm gonna screw up this quote and so I apologize in advance, but there was a a book um about Buddhism that I was reading and they were like, Imagine that you had like um like a tiny rubber band in floating in the entire vastness of the uh ocean and then you had a turtle being able to like come up and put its head through like the odds of that well not in the world we live in now which is a lot of plastic but the odds of that are like the chances that you would be a human like Hmm. that a human could be here in the world and or it could be like think of all the grains of sand in the world and like you know picking up one of them is the chance of being a human and so you just think of the manifestation of an, a human experience and the gift that it is. Mm-hmm. And it really is a gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Name one activity you turn to when you need a reset or like a refresh, start over kind of kind of mentality. Oh, going for a run. Yeah. I just like, there's nothing like going for a run. I always say I'm like 30 minutes um, away from a new life or a new point of view. Yeah. Just get out, hammer it out. Oh, I love that. Your brain. Yeah. Just 30 <laughs> minutes away. What, uh, what brand of running shoe do you prefer? Uh, Brooks. Nice. Right next door. Yeah. As well. yeah. We're right next door to their, um, their flagship oh, yeah. store here in Fremont. Okay. Last question. Hopefully this hasn't been too taxing on you. This is another fill in the blank. (laughs) I know. Take a deep breath. Um, this, we like to borrow a quote from John Muir, um, uh, father of the national park system. He pens the quote, the mountains are calling and I must go. So we're going to play with that and have you fill in the blank is calling and I must go. Uh, okay. So right now for me, I'd say silence is calling and I must go. It has just been a lot the last five months and, um, I'm going to go take a few days and be by myself for a while and just 
not talk to other humans. Good. Good. Perfect. That's great. That's that really awesome. great. Amazing. Well, thank you wow. so much for thank this whole conversation, for just letting us get to know you and, um, and your work. Yes, oh. it's been a great conversation. I know that we're going to have more conversations, which I'm excited I for. I know, I But know. not before you take a break and you yeah, stop get, talking to humans for a few days. Go get your silence <laughs> and then we'll bug you. And we'll, we'll, mix, uh, we'll mix tonic somehow. We got we to gotta figure that out. Yeah, virtual so tonics. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So thank you for taking time. It's, uh, how, how do people find you? Uh, renewalworkshop.com? Renewalworkshop.com. We're on Instagram at renewalworkshop. Um, and if brands want to get a, get a hold of you, head to the website, fill out the form. Hello at the renewalworkshop.com and you can find us and yeah, love to get a hold of you. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking yeah. time. It's been great to hang out with you. Uh, my pleasure. And I have really enjoyed it. I'm really excited for you guys on this journey and I look forward to working with you in some way. Absolutely. Take cool. care. Thank All right. you. Thanks, thanks. Nicole. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you on the next episode.